Good morning. Welcome to Northwest Church. It's good to be together in the house of God. Amen? Amen. My name is Aslan Bouton. I'm one of the preaching pastors that are on rotation here about every six weeks. And I normally preach, uh, t- tag team preach with my husband. We like to do it together. We both have sanguine personalities, so we like to uh, do stuff together and have fun, But he, which we were going to do, and he woke up this morning very ill with a headache and fever and chills and sore throat. So here I am flying solo, but I am excited to be here this morning to finish this series. <clears throat> we like to preach in a monthly theme here instead of just jumping from topic to topic. So this is the last week in our series called After the Cross. And we took time after Easter to kind of show in the, the days and the weeks and the months leading after uh, Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. We've been studying that here as a church together. So today, this series, we're going to end on looking at how the church began, the formation of the church that we have now as we understand it now. So last week, uh, Bishop Robinson spoke um, from a scripture in Acts 1 where the disciples, this is after Jesus had ascend, rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, and he told the disciples to wait. And, and last week, Bishop Robinson talked on prayer and the importance of praying. And so he spoke from that verse uh, in chapter 1. So we're going to continue with chapter 2 of Acts. And today, we're going to do a lot of reading, okay? So let's do it together. You can Get, bring it up on your phones if it's going to be too small or in your own Bible. But we're going to read most of chapter 2. I'm going to skip a little bit of the middle where uh, the Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches to a crowd. I'm cutting out some of that, not because it's not good, but just for the sake of time. Uh, so please follow along with me. You can read at home the rest that we're kind of skipping over today. But let's begin. This is approximately 40 to 60 days after uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is where we're at. The disciples are waiting in a room because that's what Jesus told them. He said, wait, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you since I'm no longer on this earth with you. So this is where we pick up the account of what happened. Starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, oh my word, I got through this so perfectly in the first service and now I'm stumbling here. Uh, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Siren, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, 
raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I'm going to pause right here. And he begins uh, to preach a message to them. But let me say what's happening here. Peter stands up during Pentecost, and Pentecost was a celebration where Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem and celebrate the post-barley harvest. So when you were done harvesting your barley, you would take um, an offering for it, and you would bring it to Jerusalem, and basically the city would party. And then they would do this, and then they would go back home after Pentecost, and then they would start the wheat harvest, and then they would be harvesting wheat the rest of the year. So this is like the whole city parties together. So this is essentially Mardi Gras that the Apostle Peter stands up during when he sees this opportunity when the crowd is drawn around the other disciples trying to figure out how do they know these other languages, he takes this moment to stand up at a citywide festival. And he's like, hey, everyone, listen to this. Listen to what I'm about to say. And he preaches the first distinctly Christian message right here. Already, what a difference we see in Peter after the cross than who Peter was before the cross. Such boldness to stand up and preach So, like I said, I'm kind of skipping the majority of his sermon. He goes and he talks about how Jesus is the fulfillment that the Old Testament talked about. But I do want to point out two things specifically that he said, because they're so shocking and so bold. In verse 23, he says, talking about Jesus, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And again, in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So there are thousands of people in this crowd, right? And we know this because it says that 3,000 of them repented and were saved after hearing this message. So we don't know exactly how many total were in the crowd. And so Peter stands up in the middle of this festival and tells crowds of thousands of people, hey, you know this man that most of you have probably never even seen or heard of because you're from other parts of the empire? Guess what? You killed him. The audacity of that, the boldness. But you know the beautiful and offensive thing about Jesus? is that he tells us the truth about ourselves. And that, that is why the message of the cross is so offensive to those, to everyone, until you see what it's truly saying, and then it becomes the most beautiful message you have ever heard. Because he tells us the truth about who we are. And if you went outside and asked most people in Orlando what they believed or what they think it would take to you know, get to heaven, the, the most common answer would probably be something around the fact that Well, if you're a good person, you know, good things happen to you, or, you know, I think you'll have a good life. And there is something in us that wants to say, you know, I'm a good person, right? We're all good people, generally, except for criminals and murderers. Well, I'm a good person. But we know, if you're honest with yourself, you know that you are not intrinsically good. If, if, If I displayed, if the Lord displayed, if someone put all my inner thoughts, every thought I've ever thought, and put every motive and every action I've ever done, if you put that on the screen right now, I would run out of here screaming. 
so embarrassed and ashamed of the, some of the thoughts I've had, some of the things I've done in my life. So if I'm honest with myself, and if you're honest with yourself, you can say, yes, I know that I'm not always a good person. I can't claim that I am forever, absolutely, 100% always good. And so that's what's so beautiful and, and often so difficult for people about Jesus is because he sees, he looks inside, and he sees my thoughts, he sees my heart, he sees my motives, and he says, Aslan, this is not good. You're a sinner, you've messed up, you fall short. But he also says, I have made a way for you. I have made a way, and that's what Romans 3.23 says. It says, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so this is what Peter is doing at Pentecost. He's saying, look, you may not have even been here. You maybe don't even know who this Jesus was, but let me tell you, he was God, and you killed him. Our sin killed him. We killed him. We put him to death. So how did they <clears throat> respond to this? We pick back up at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With this, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This last portion of scripture we have preached on several times already this year because it's kind of been like the, the theme of this year for us. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen? All right, so we're going to kind of quickly go through the who, the what, and the why. Who were these people that formed the early church? What were they doing when they got together, and why did they do it? So first, who? Who are these people? Well, we saw in verse 5, it said, every nation under heaven. Incredible diversity. Every culture, every temperament, every class, all together. They came for Pentecost, their tradition, their, their party tradition, and they get saved. And immediately, these people who have nothing in common are together in each other's homes every night. Immediately, after their after-cross experience brought them together. Far more diversity, far more um, differences than we have in America today did, this, did these people have back then. They were far, far more um, separated and had more differences. And yet we see that after they get saved, they were brought together. And the things that made them different did not matter in light of Christ and what he had done. And so I wanted to read, uh, if you are not a Christian, you're like, okay, hey, well, I don't believe Christianity is the only way. Whether you believe that or not, believe this. this. This is a historical fact that Christianity absolutely changed not only this culture, but the world because of this, because of its radical inclusiveness. 
And no other religion, no other empire, nothing did what Christianity did for culture. And so I wanted to read one more thing, one more chunk. I know I told you it's a lot of reading today, and I went back and forth on if I should put it in, but I just didn't want to leave it out because it's so good. I put in um, a section of an article that was written by a historian from Yale who was just writing because historians and, and and scholars love to study Christianity in the early century, whether they are Christians or not, because it was so radical. It changed the world. We're still living the effects of how Christianity changed the world. And so it's fascinating to study, and they try to figure out what was it? What was it about Christianity that, was, that changed everything? So, because there were a hundred other religions, right, in Jerusalem at this time. It wasn't like this was the only other one that popped up, so let's all... No, there were hundreds of other religions. What made this religion, one, take over like it did and change the world? Let's read this with me. This is a historian from Yale, something from his article that I pulled out. Christianity's success is to be found in its absolute inclusiveness. More than any other of its competitor religions, it attracted all races and classes. The pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. Even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, meaning its most evangelistic activities, trying to win people to their religion, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because its converts had to become culturally Jewish. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, and barbarian. The philosophers to Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed to the educated only and could never win the masses. It was one of the charges against Christianity that it drew the lonely and uneducated multitude, that its essential teaching was so simple that anyone could understand. Yet Christianity also developed a philosophy that converted some of the greatest minds in the society. Christianity, too, was for both sexes and women were active in its work, while two of its main competitor religions were almost exclusively for men. Finally, the mystery religions were mainly for the rich, and initiation was very expensive. There was no other religion that took in all groups in all strata of society. The one tenable explanation of Christianity's ex inclusiveness, so the one thing that can't be argued, the one, the one defendable fact about why Christianity took in so many types of people was probably its teaching of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. For if Jesus was not just a teacher showing the way of salvation, but was the Son of God who accomplished salvation, then members of both sexes, all races, the learned, the unlearned, the high, the low, the able, the non-able, might all be able to share in salvation made possible in Christ. Amen? Christianity was so, and still is, such a radical change that brought in every type. It put everyone on the same playing field. You didn't have to be, be a certain color, have a certain amount of money. Jesus Christ made a way for all of us. It's like, you've all failed, you've all sinned, and I have made a way for you. And so, I, you know, we look at our culture now, and it still has issues. And we still have, there's still slavery going on in other parts of the world. There's still racism, sexism. There's, we're not a perfect society. But you know what our answer to it should be is the gospel message of Christ. 
that no one has any leg to stand on to say I'm better or less worthy than, no, Christ puts us all, Christianity puts us all together, equally sinful and equally accepted by Jesus. And I'm going to say something here that if you're not a Christian and you, uh, d- you know, don't agree with this way of life, what I'm about to say is going to be very, maybe offensive to you politically, but I just need to say it because you I want you to know what the Christian view is. This is why things like abortion um, or slavery that is happening in the world, we Christians have to stand in opposition against those things because Jesus Christ says that your value is not how much you produce in this world. If you're able, if you're disabled, or if you're elderly, or if you're unborn, you can't really produce in this. You can't offer anything. But Jesus Christ says, no, no, no. You have value because I created you. Because I have instilled value inside of you. And so whether you're productive, whether you're unable, whether you're uh, smart, not smart, have money, don't have money, nothing of that changes whether you are a valued human being who deserves respect and dignity. And so that is why Christians are passionate about issues that we're passionate about because Jesus Christ says to go forth and spread this message. Some of the greatest abolitionists of our time in history and now were Christians believing that God has created us all equal. So that was who made up the church. People of all different backgrounds from all over the empire, different languages, different temperaments, different classes formed this first early church. It's absolutely amazing. I love that about Christianity. I love that about God. So what? What did the early church do when they all of a sudden, boom, were now this group of people that were meeting together? This is the verse that we've preached on several times, but I didn't want to pass it over in case you weren't here earlier in the year to hear it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. If you like alliteration, you can say they were into learning, loving, and liturgy. This is what they did. They were learning the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament... Well, the Jews would anyway, but they were now studying the apostles' teaching about how Jesus was the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so we, what we now have as the New Testament, which is the disciples and apostles' letters, is what they were learning. And they were loving. They were in fellowship with each other, constantly together. It said that they immediately were in each other's homes. And it said they would go to the temple and then to someone's house. Every day, the temple, let's go to church, then let's carry on at someone's house. Every day. People, different races, different cultures were immediately bound together and fellowshipping. They had a radical change. Why? Because that's a sign of new life in you. When you have a radical change, when Jesus changes your life, you want to talk about it. You want to be with other people who have had that change. It's a sign of new life. If that new life is flourishing in you, you want to be together with other people who are also experiencing that new life and that change. It's like if you have a baby. When you take home your little brand new baby, you don't have to teach that baby to cry. It's a sign that it's alive. If it's alive, it's going to cry. And if you have the new life flourishing within you, You want to fellowship. You want to be with other people who are experiencing and learning and growing. I remember this was true for my own life. When I really got saved and knew what that meant, I was probably between like 11 and 13. I'm not sure. I'm not talking about if you were raised in church and you said the sinner's prayer, probably like five to seven. 
I don't mean that. That's, you know, doing something, but that's really going on your parents' faith, right? And you're just going along with what you're being taught, and, and you have some measure of understanding. But everyone has a day that comes where you choose, and it either becomes real for you. You get saved. You know what it means, and it's personal to you. And so that happened for me around, you know, somewhere between 11 and 13. And during that time, all I wanted to do was be with my other friends who also had that new life flourishing. And so Pastor Grace, she's, uh, her and her husband are the uh, Kitchers pastors. She uh, was at our church at that time, and we became best friends. And we loved getting together and talking about what God was doing in our life. And my sister-in-law, Hope, she was a part of that. And for, for Hope's birthday, for her 11th birthday, she asked to have a tent in the backyard and so that we could be out in a tent, you know, go camping for her birthday. And so we did that. Her parents put up a tent. The lunches are here. You remember this. They put up this huge tent that held 15 people. And so Hope invited all of her friends over. And we stayed up all night long praying and worshiping at her birthday party. The poor girls who were not into Christianity was like, this is the most boring, weirdest thing we have ever been a part of, but we couldn't help it. We were just so excited. And we stayed up all night long praying, talking about what was God, God was doing, playing worship music because we were so excited. And Grace and I would um, go to each other's houses on weekends and spend the night. And we'd be like, so we would sit on the couch. And we'd be like, okay, let's read the Bible. Let's journal. Then we're going to talk about what we just read and journaled and talk about at 12. Who does that? I, but it was coming alive in us. God was speaking to us. And we were having new life flourishing. And all we wanted to do was talk about it. Get together. We would beg our parents, please. They lived in Winter Garden. I lived in Sanford. We'd be like, please just drive us over there. Not because we wanted to watch Dawson's Creek all, all weekend. We wanted to talk about what we were learning, what God was, that we were discovering God and how he was changing us. And so when the new life is flourishing in you, you want to get together. You know, pastors, myself included, we will, you know, subtly hint or not hint, not so subtly hint. That's like, you need a fellowship. You need to get in a small group. Come on, people. Try to like each other. You didn't have to do that to the people in Acts right now. It was, they were driven to be together because they were so excited about this new message that had come to them. Okay, and liturgy is the last one at this point. Corporate worship. It says that they took communion. They broke bread and took communion and remembered the sacrifice that God had done for them or learned about the sacrifice if they hadn't been there to experience. And so that kind of leads us to our last point here, the why. What do we think was driving them? And I think that praise, it says getting together, praising God and growing in the favor of man. I think praise was the engine driving this fellowship. The engine. When you see something beautiful, it's like that experience isn't really even complete until you've had a chance to talk about it and praise it, right? It's like that, that's why people travel, right? One of the reasons. You don't travel to some place new or be, let's take Scotland, for example. We have family and friends and a church over there that we love. And so whenever we get the money, people are like, I'm going to go to Scotland. Why do you do that? For the experience. But then also to talk about it, you come back and you're like, oh my word. And you want to talk to Pastor Peter and you want to say, I saw this. He said, you saw that. It's so beautiful. 
you don't really complete that experience of joy of seeing something beautiful until you've praised it, until you've talked about it. And I believe that was what was driving this early church, despite their differences, to be together is because they desired to praise the most beautiful thing they had ever seen. To be together to say, I'm learning this. What, how's he changing you? Praise is the engine that helps us overcome our differences, our offenses, it's praise. Some of us in here have bitterness towards other Christians. Some of us have indifference. It's like, eh, I mean, they're, they're fine. I don't really, I could take them or leave them, you know, people. <laughs> Some of us have sensitivities, get hurt feelings. Some of us are critical of things that happen in this church. Oh, the band, blah, 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 the preaching. <laughs> Whatever. Not just this church, every church. I mean the church. It's here. It's here. And in every church, we have bitterness and criticisms and passivity and hurt feelings and just, eh, whatever. Praise the one who was broken for you. Praise him. Praise his body did that for you. He did that for me. And if I'm looking at the broken body of Christ, and I know, I know what's in my head. I know what my motives are, the things I've done. And when I look at the broken body of Christ, I can't hold on to bitterness towards you. I can't be passive and indifferent towards humanity if I'm looking at the sacrifice God made for me. And so my challenge to you this week is to praise the one who was broken for you. Because you can know it. You can know what Jesus did. You know, we all know. Everyone knows what Christianity is about. And for those of you here who are just seeking and just learning and, you know, you don't, you're like, this girl's crazy. She's crying here, like worshiping a dead guy's body. That's so weird. I know it's weird. But when you have that revelation, when you know what that means and how it's changed you, and when you praise that brokenness for you, you, can't, you, you, you look at one and you forget the rest. You, forget, you, you can't hold on, oh God, thank you so much for forgiving me for all of my frailties, for all of my sin, for all of my weak shortcomings, but I'm really going to hold on to this thing over here that this person did that I can't get past or be critical because so-and-so doesn't run church the way I want them to run it. You can't. You have to hold on to one and forget the other. Let go of it. Let go of it. Look at him and it will break all the barriers of race and culture, temperament, your history, your personal history, what's happened to you. Look at him and the rest of it fades. I'm going to invite uh, Pastor Peter up and we're going to take communion together like, like the early church did. And I want to encourage you, if you know that you have bitterness or indifference or unforgiveness towards someone here or whatever, against the church, against, I encourage you, let that go right now. Or maybe you hold your communion, you don't take it till you go to that person. But it's important that we do this and worship and remember his body that was broken for us. And the last thing I'll say before I hand it over, so I, I would ask you that if, if you're here from another church and you 
believe in the Lord, please take communion with us. But if you're here and you're a seeker or, you know, you don't believe in Christianity, I'm going to ask that you just refrain. This isn't to single you out or to be like, you can't. This is something, you don't believe that, that this means something for you. And that's okay for right now, although I urge you to look into it. But we take communion and it is, a, it is worship to God. And we know what this means to us. So if you don't believe that, I just ask that you refrain from taking it this morning. It's a good word. I heard this week um, the great prophet Matthew McConaughey said um, that many a man has been, many a man's time has been cut short because of guilt and shame. Let me say it again. Many a man's time has been cut short because of guilt and shame. And the fact is, the reason why Peter was able to accuse so many people of being the ones who put Christ to death is because what we have done has separated us from the Father. And because of what Christ has done is what brings us to the Father. And that's why we take communion. Because Jesus said we take it in remembrance of what he has done to bring us back to the Father. I don't know if I need Bishop Robinson here today to try and get this, drive this home. But this brings us back to the Father. You are no longer fatherless. You're no longer abandoned. You're no longer left to your own devices. You're no longer left without a bag of tools to help you be able to get through life. And as Aslan was saying, the reason why we want to worship him is because he has brought us back to our dad once again. And let me tell you, the power of what he has done on the cross changes us entirely. The reason why we praise him, we don't just praise him by singing a song. We praise him by going, Jesus, what can I do with my business to tell other people about what you've done? What can I do with my house and my car and all the stuff I've got in my pockets? What can I do with everything that's in my life to, 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 to show how great what you are and what you've done? How can I tell other people? How can I praise you? How can I thank you by using everything that's in my life, my intelligence, my travel budget, my eating budget, my friendships, my gifts, my skills, everything I have in my life. I want to tell everyone about Christ because he has changed my life. He brought me back to my dad. He's brought you back to your father. That's why we praise Jesus, because he brought us back to our dad. Do you know you have a dad? Do you know you have a father? Man, don't you want to be with him? Let's stand this morning. For those who have found the father, congratulations. For those who have not found the father, keep pressing on. Keep pushing towards it. If you want to give your, your, your life to Christ in order to have a father, then I want to invite you to do that this morning. If you want to come forward, come forward. Let's do that. I mean, I don't want to miss a moment here. Maybe everyone here is already, you're already in the club. Well, that's great. You're already signed up. If there's someone here this morning that's not made that decision, I want you to come forward and make a public declaration of it. I'm going to give you five seconds to do that. You ready? Here we go. One, two, Three, four, five. All right, you're all rest in the club. That's great. Let's open this thing up. Jesus said when he was taking 
the bread and the wine the night before he's about to die, he said, take this and remember what I'm about to do for you. You don't understand what's about to happen. Your life's about to explode and change. And every time the enemy comes to try and convince you of your guilt and shame, take this once again. Because I don't want you to forget that crap is done. Your guilt and your shame is done. And every time the enemy comes and tells you, nah, you're still just as bad. And every time you do fall and sin and stumble, no, you're just as bad. You go, no, no, my dad still loves me. He sent his son. And Father, we take this bread as a symbol of what your son has done to remember how his body was broken for us. Take this juice, Father, as a symbol to remind ourselves. I want you to look at it right now. I want you to look at it and go that this is as if the blood of Christ is right now coming into me and being my super, super power to cover over everything that I've ever done wrong. And that in any situation I find myself, I can say I'm covered by the superpower blood. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm completely covered in everything that is wrong with me. Everything I've ever done wrong completely neutralizes it because of what Jesus has done and I've got it right here in my hands. And so we take it in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Dad, we wanna thank you for sending your son for us, for bringing us alive. And because of what your son has done on the cross, we now receive your spirit from the bottom of our feet to overflowing. We are filled with the power of the spirit to be empowered to carry out the will of the Father, to be empowered to do what you've called us to do. So we thank you right now. I want you to say it out loud. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Say it again. Thank you, Father. Say, we praise you, Father. Thank you, Father. Our God is good. Our God is good. Father, we want to thank you for what you have done for us. And we go out of here free once again, believing as we are being saved over and over every day. We believe that we are free, free, free indeed. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.